The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I am delighted to be joined today and I can say back by popular demand because the last time we had these two on, their disputations caused a lot of amusement and intrigue. So I thought we'd get them on again. I don't know if this topic is going to be quite so controversial. I think we're going to talk about the Biden administration's approach to the Middle East and whether it's been successful or disastrous. I am joined uh, (laughs) by the laughing Charles Lipson, Professor Charles Lipson, who is a professor of political science at the University of Chicago. And by Jacob Halbron, who is uh, a very regular on this podcast and also editor of The National Interest and the author of a new book, which is out now, is it, Jacob? February. But pre-order on Amazon. Pre-order. You're sorry, you can pre-order it. It's called a, a, a Christmas Present That Will Arrive Late. It's called America Last, The Right Century-Long Romance with Dictators. Jacob, I will start with you. You wrote a bit of a fan note for Jake Sullivan in the Washington Post the other day, I think it was. And I think you're taking the typically contrarian line that the Biden administration seems to know exactly what it's doing in the Middle East and that its policies there have been effective. Is that your line or am I being unfair? I do not ascribe omniscience to the Biden administration. I do think that they handled it in a fairly pragmatic fashion. The piece that you're referring to, Freddie, was a response to an essay in Tablet by Jeremy Stern, which flayed National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan as a servile lackey of the foreign policy establishment. Having written more than a few hatchet jobs in my own time, I could easily discern this one from far away. What he did was he made Sullivan the culprit for everything that has gone wrong in American foreign policy. The only thing he didn't blame him for was securing the safety of NFL quarterbacks. (laughs) We needed that yesterday. Believe me, the Chicago Bears needed Jake Sullivan. So my intention is that the Biden administration has done the correct thing, both morally and in a strategic sense, by backing Israel in the face of what is obviously a brutal, essentially a pogrom against Jews living in Israel. And, you know, I don't see a moral equivalence here. I don't think there's one side and the other side. I think Israel was attacked and is responding and has to root out Hamas. The criticisms that are being leveled at the Biden administration from the left, I disagree with, as well as from the right. I think Biden 
has deliberately made the choice to stay very close to Prime Minister Netanyahu. And I think he has slowed down the Israeli response initially, which I think was prudent. And he's trying to prevent the war from escalating. So, yeah, it's a delicate balance. But I think Biden handed a difficult situation, has done pretty well in the Middle East so far. So, Charles, annoyingly, I suspect you're not going to disagree that much with Jacob there. I think Jacob has it exactly right. I think that there are two issues that I would add to that. I think the major American mistake was in intelligence related to Iran. Uh, That is, I think it was Israel's responsibility to know about Hamas and the tunnels and what they might be planning. And there was clearly a huge failure there. America, however, should have known more about the Iran side of this. That's not Jake Sullivan's mistake. That's the CIA and NSA and others. I think that the issue now has to do with what I would see as possible divergences going forward about what Israel's endgame will be and how they can get there. The problem really is twofold. One is that Hamas has deliberately put its most sensitive military sites in civilian areas, thinking either Israel wouldn't attack them because they were there, or if it did attack them, it would be blamed for civilian deaths. And that is, of course, what is is happening. But the Americans have a second concern, which is it's unclear how Gaza can be governed after uh, the major military operation is finished, whether or not it gets most of Hamas leadership or not. Jacob, I think the Biden administration has slightly misjudged the Middle East to a certain extent in that it clearly wanted to uh, revivify something of the Iran deal, if not the Iran deal itself, uh, something of a a more cordial relationship with Iran. And at the same time, it realised that that couldn't really happen. And so it carried on the Trump era strategy of normalisation with the Gulf states. And carrying those two things on in parallel has proved very difficult. I'm not saying that's the cause of October 7th, Uh, But it has put the Biden administration arguably in a slightly weaker position. What do you think about that? Well, I think the administration was clearly trying to contain the Iranian nuclear capacity without reaching a formal agreement, which seemed sensible to me at the time. Whether that is still a viable path is, is an open question. I think what the administration or what perhaps fail to realize and what I think they do recognize now, and I think House Republicans are not recognizing, is that there is a, I wouldn't use this term axis of evil that Mitch McConnell is using because it's too redolent of the George W. Bush administration, but there is something going on with this relationship between Iran, Russia, China, Hamas, Hezbollah, these are not accidental relationships. 
which is why I, I'm concerned primarily. I'm not cons- as concerned about the Israeli ability to defang Hamas as I am about the bedwetters in Washington, D.C., who don't have the necessary fortitude to support Ukraine and its struggle against Russia, because I do now see these struggles as interlinked. I completely agree with the point about Ukraine, and I'm only sorry that you attacked that one indefensible identity group, uh, the bedwetters. They don't have a proper spokesman, and I'm sorry to see you attack them so virulently. But I think where I have a disagreement with you, Jacob, may be on the larger Middle East strategy. I think fundamentally, the choice in the Middle East has to do not so much uh, with the Iranian nuclear deal, but whether you really push hard to constrain Iran with a series of sanctions and the like, with the idea of supporting a counter coalition, which would be built around basically Israel and Saudi Arabia, or whether you think as the Biden administration actually put it publicly that they believe in an integrated Middle East where they somehow could integrate Iran into it and would relax the sanctions. They're now saying, I think falsely, that they have enforced sanctions. But in fact, Iran was nearly broke when uh, the Biden administration came into office and they've allowed them to rebuild massive amounts of foreign currency reserves, which they've used to back their proxies in the region. And the point about Yemen and the Houthis, who are now firing on Israel and firing across Saudi Arabia, is that that's part of an Iranian strategy to surround Saudi Arabia. So I think that the Biden administration, to me, the key question is whether the Biden administration will now fundamentally reevaluate Uh, that policy, something that's almost never done. The only administration I can think of, Jacob, you and Freddie may have other examples. The only administration I can think of that really fundamentally changed a major policy toward an adversary was Jimmy Carter after the invasion of Afghanistan. And he switched from an accommodation kind of appeasement policy to the policy that actually Reagan carried out. I don't share your faith in sanctions on Iran. I think if you wanted to up the pressure, you would have to start engaging in a much more active fashion, including covert operations, you know, being more confrontational with the Iranian Navy. I don't think the Biden administration has been that conciliatory in recent years as as it's being painted. And I think the Iranians were interested in some kind of deal on this nuclear issue. But um, they have clearly constructed a coalition against Israel in the Middle East that I think eliminating Hamas is the first step towards deconstructing or eliminating this threat. Things have been allowed to slide too long in that area. The Israelis themselves have been uh, willfully culpable in ignoring the threat right on their own border that was growing. And 
the the time of illusions in that regard is obviously over. I don't know why you're objecting to my to my bedwetters. Actually, it's not just bedwetters. It's also there is a faction in the GOP that is actively hostile to Ukraine, including Donald Trump. And uh, I oppose them outright. I mean, I'm, I'm completely with you. I was just making a joke about your hostility to this beleaguered group that, I mean, they have enough trouble getting up out of bed in the morning. I don't know where Freddie stands on this. He, he may not be I'm a hard I am on the... I'm a bedwetter and I'm, I'm pro-bedwetting. It's very, <laughs> um, um, very underrated but... activity. Well, let's get into the Middle East in a bit, and we can go back to bedwetting if we must. But I would like to ask about Obama's intervention over the weekend. Um, it was interpreted in Politico and other places as Obama sort of unhelpfully sticking his oar in, as far as Joe Biden was concerned, by doing his uh, classic Obama thing and saying, you know, nobody's hands are clean, mooting the two-state solution a little bit, um, and generally sounding like Mr. Reasonable, but a accommodating the left of the Democrats, which is where Biden might have a problem. What did you think of that intervention, Charles? I'll start with you. Well, first, I've watched and read the two interventions that Barack Obama has made, neither of which mentioned Iran because his policy toward Iran obviously failed. And I had, um, besides finding his interventions here appalling, I had one other thought about them. They were amplified by the fact that uh, my friend David Axelrod came out today and said he, basically he didn't think that Biden should continue in the race and that he should get out. I think it's possible to interpret Barack Obama's interventions in one of two ways. One is, uh, and I don't think we're quite sure yet. One is that he's trying to buttress Biden on the left, especially in states like Michigan, where he could be losing out. The other is uh, that he is doing something more subtle than David Axelrod. But David, I don't think, would have spoken out without having some coordination. Not that I know that he did, but that he might have had some coordination with other people, with Barack himself or other people in that camp to force uh, Biden out of the race. Biden's popularity is just dismal. And I think Democrats are afraid that he not only might lose, but that he might carry down uh, either house. Not that the Republicans are in a strong position, but when you see a candidate as weak and controversial as Donald Trump leading in five out of the six, I think it was, battleground states in the U.S., which is where the election will be fought and won, then you have to be very concerned as a Democrat. But, Jacob, uh, Biden went to Israel and gave one of his empathetic speeches in which he told people he knew about suffering and pain. And I think a lot of people thought that that went down very well. But the opinion polls suggest he has not enjoyed a, a popularity bump from playing Mr. World Peace. Well, foreign affairs, I mean, look, people see the world as, as having entered a period of chaos under Joe Biden. And they remember an Elysian age under Donald Trump. Low inflation, plenty of jobs. They forget the COVID era. They forget Trump's 
saber rattling with North Korea than than visiting it and playing kissy face with Kim Jong Un. I am not persuaded that uh, Biden is inevitably headed towards defeat against Donald Trump. I actually think that Barack Obama would have done a far worse job in both Ukraine and in the Middle East than Biden. The irony of all of this is, to me, Biden is essentially a Cold War liberal, pretty hawkish instincts in foreign policy, pretty conventional, pretty pragmatic. I think Obama was more to the left, more somewhat more idealistic and less prone to be as decisive as Biden has been in Ukraine. But none of this means that foreign affairs is going to redound to Biden's benefit. Right now, he's trying to prevent an escalation of the war in the Middle East, and he desperately wants to ensure that gas prices keep falling. If there's an escalation that includes Iran or other countries and that drives oil up to $150 a barrel, you can count Donald Trump as a shoe in in 2024. Well, it's interesting you mention the price of, of gas, Jacob, because I think probably Biden's most glaring hypocrisy on foreign policy was what he said about, actually, there's been a few, but what he said about Mohammed bin Salman uh, as a candidate, calling him a pariah and so on, and then quickly realising when the sort of realities of global politics kicked in and realising that America, for all its energy abundance, needs Saudi Arabia to keep pumping and then becoming very friendly with Mohammed bin Salman. Charles, do you think that volt farce is now affecting Biden as he tries to deal with this situation in the Middle East? First, I want to agree with Jacob at the risk of sounding too friendly here. I think that Biden is a Cold War liberal, but I think that his party has moved much further to the left, and that presents a tension. And you can see that on the issue of gasoline, and energy prices. Biden, uh, the best appeal to his party is a green energy program, but that's not a strong appeal to the median voter. And the median voter is not buying electric vehicles. And I think in general, it's right to say that Trump's strongest appeal is going to be, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And that it's the whole conjury of events that are hurting Biden. And I, I would just say the oddity is that in a way, the economy is very strong, but people don't feel it. And the reason they don't feel it is because median incomes have gone down and people are very uncertain about their situation. So I, I think Biden is in a lot of trouble, but Trump is such a controversial candidate, and nowhere is he more controversial, I think, than in foreign policy. His strength in foreign policy is that he's unpredictable. So opponents are never quite sure what he might do to harm them if they harm U.S. interests. But his policies toward NATO, his policies toward Ukraine and so forth are, I think, extremely damaging to the U.S., but they are consistent with the way that he has transformed much of the base of the Republican Party, which is no longer a kind of Burkean party. It is a populist party under Trump, and that's the tension within the party. But you can see both parties splitting 
on a lot of these critical issues. And part of that, which I think has not been mentioned by people, is that we no longer have party structures that really matter. There's no big city political leaders that can get together and say, let's nominate Harry Truman and and get rid of uh, Wallace, who's too far to the left or something like that. And we can't have Byrne because he's a segregationist and we might lose northern votes. There's no people to get together in a room like that. And both parties are now suffering these kind of deep splits. I mean, look at what Rashida Tlaib accused Joe Biden of committing genocide. I mean, this is a member of his own party. This is really striking to me. Jacob, do you agree with that? Do you think both parties are suffering the same, more different, but similar foreign policy splits? Well, it's hard for me to keep up with both of you with your uh, fancy $5 words, such as congeries and volt fast. But I'll, I'll do my best, Freddie. You've never been uh, one to I know, use you're just a poor words. country boy. Yeah. Um, Let's see what he cooks up now. I, I think actually there are elements of disputation inside the Democratic Party. I think the Republican Party is more riven over these issues. And what really will be interesting and I think could be pivotal for Biden's future is what happens tomorrow with the elections in Virginia and Kentucky, but particularly and then the abortion in Ohio. If the Democrats get wiped out in Virginia or do not do well and Glenn Youngkin has a big victory, the governor of Virginia, I think that's going to be a real that's going to the New York Times poll triggered angst in Democratic ranks. But if they don't do well in the elections tomorrow, then there really will be panic. It will be laid at Biden's doorstep. Charles, do you agree with that? It's a great point. And I just have an article out in a publication you know well, Freddie. I think it was about Kentucky. uh, On the election in uh, Kentucky. But that was really mostly about the racial sliming that a Black Lives Matter affiliate called Black Voters Matter, funded by the usual suspects, put out to slime the black conservative candidate or, or really populist candidate in in Kentucky. I wasn't defending uh, Daniel Cameron, that candidate for governor, on any substantive grounds. I was just saying that calling him Uncle Tom and saying all skinfolk ain't kinfolk, which is a Zora Neale Hurston quote originally, but not used in that political context, that this kind of identity politics is really damaging to the country. But what it tells you is something that all political observers know, which is that uh, in many, many states, African-Americans need to vote in large numbers and almost uniformly for Democrats in order for the Democratic candidate to win. And that's true in Kentucky. And that's why the ad was run. Well, I think we will end it there. Congratulations to both of you as observers of the world at large for managing to turn a conversation about the Middle East into Virginia and Kentucky. But I'm grateful as ever to both of you for coming on. Um, It's always very interesting to hear from you both. Well, thank you. And uh, let's make this a regular debate, uh, Jacob. But we'll have to find more 
issues to disagree about next yeah, time. Yeah, you didn't disagree. It was very disappointing. No. Well, uh, he still probably thinks I'm ugly. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Ferose, and the rest of the Spectator's broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America.